Well, you have gotten your nickels worth this morning, haven't you? I say that because that's all some of you put in. But as George Goble said once, I feel like a pair of brown shoes and a room full of tuxedos. It's just wonderful today. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. We are reminded on a daily basis as to how divided our country is. We are divided politically. There are the Democrats and the Republicans, and the parties are divided. We are divided religiously. There are those who say that we were founded on religion. That is a part of our heritage. And others say, but we are a secular country, and religion has no place in it. We are divided racially. We are divided just in about every way you can think of. I have seen... uh, Uh, Clemson ties today. I've seen Gamecock ties today. We're divided just about every way that one can imagine. Well, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, Israel was divided, very similar to the way that we are divided today. They were divided politically. There was one group called the Pharisees. The word Pharisees comes from an Aramaic word which carries the idea of separation within it. So the Pharisees then would be the conservatives. They were the ones who separated from the liberals and uh, so forth within society. So the, the Pharisees then were the conservatives. Over on the other side were the Sadducees, and they were the liberals. Vine said the Sadducees aimed at removing Judaism from its narrowness, and sharing in the advantages of Greek life and culture. So the Sadducees then were the progressives of that day. So we have the Pharisees who were the conservatives. We have the the Sadducees who were the uh, liberals. There were the zealots who were the militants. Vine said a, a name applied to an extreme section of the Pharisees, bitterly antagonistic to the Romans. So... The zealots then were the hawks who wanted to overthrow Rome. And then there were the Essenes who were the separatists. The Davis Dictionary of the Bible says they were an order of men among the Jews in the time of Christ who numbered about 4,000 and devoted themselves to a more or less ascetic life, hoping by isolation to escape ceremonial defilement They formed colonies by themselves. So they then were the libertarians. So when you look politically at the landscape in the time Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, you had the conservatives, the Pharisees. You had the liberals, the Sadducees. You had the zealots who were the militants. You had the Essenes who were the libertarians. But they were divided very much as we are today. They were also divided spiritually. There were the legalists who gave a very strict interpretation of Scripture and insisted that everyone respond to the way that they interpreted the Scripture. Then there were the libertines. The libertines basically believed nothing. In fact, uh, their idea was if grace is greater than our sin, then the more we sin, the more grace there is. And so they believed very little. Well, today we continue in the Beatitudes, and we're going to combine number six and seven, purity and peace. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter five. I'm going to begin in verse number one again and read through verse number nine, and our focus will be on verses eight and nine. 
When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, we're going to look at these two Beatitudes today. And in verse number 8, he said, Blessed are the pure. The legalist emphasized purity in terms of externals. A person was pure if they kept the feast, if they kept the fast, if they kept the ceremonies, if they did all of the washings that they were supposed to do and so forth, then they were considered to be pure. But purity then was defined in terms of externals, what a person did externally. Jesus condemned that in Matthew chapter 23. In verse 25, he said, you clean the outside of the cup. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, that was the Pharisees. They understood purity in terms of things they did on the outside. Largely today, we, especially who are conservatives, have a tendency to do the same thing. We understand purity in terms of externals, those things that we do if I attend all the meetings, if I do all the readings, if I do all of these things, then I am pure. I had a pastor to speak to me a couple of weeks ago. He said, I have all these people in my church who go from one Bible study to another, from one prayer meeting to another. He said, but when I, when I look at them, they are self-righteous. They see themselves as spiritually superior. He said, I never see them lead another person to faith in Christ. He said, what I wonder is, where, where is the fruit of righteousness? Where's the fruit of righteousness? You see, we have this tendency that we want to define purity in terms of externals. That was the reason Jesus said in verse 8, blessed are the pure what? In heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. In the Bible, the heart symbolized the whole of man. It referenced his thinking. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So when we're talking about the heart in the Scripture, it talks about the totality of man, his thinking. And then his thinking determines or affects his will, and his will affects his emotions. So when Jesus said then, blessed are the pure in heart, he is speaking about the totality of man. He is speaking about the whole of man, not just externals, not just things that we do on the external, but the totality of man. Now, the Greek word for purity is katharos. 
And it has several characteristics. It means, for instance, the word purity or pure means to be clean. For instance, doctors use a cathartic to cleanse a wound. A psychologist might lead someone through a catharsis, which is a cleansing of the soul. So it means to be clean. When we're talking about purity, the word itself means to be cleaned. And then it means to be purged from any impurity. Barclay said, it is regularly used for corn which has been winnowed or sifted and cleansed of all chaff. Barclay continues, it is used of an army which has been purged of all discontented, cowardly, unwilling, and inefficient soldiers. So the word pure or purity then means to be clean. It means to be purged of any other element, and it means to be unmixed. One commentary said it's used of milk or wine which is unadulterated with water, or of metal which has in it no tinge of alloy. So when we're talking about the word purity, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. He is speaking about the totality of man. He is speaking about being clean, being purged, and unmixed. Now, there are five kinds of purity. There is primitive purity that exists only in God. God is pure. There is no sin in God. There is nothing evil in God. So He is pure. He is primitive purity. And then there is created purity. If God is totally pure, then He could not create something that is impure. And so in creation, then God created that that was pure. That means then that the angels, when they were created, were pure. They were without sin until Lucifer rebelled against God. That means when God created man, that man was pure. He was without sin until Adam and Eve sinned against God. Because God, who is all pure, creates impurity. So there is primitive purity. There is created purity. There is ultimate purity. And that is when we go to heaven, there is no sin in heaven. We will be saved from the presence of sin, so there is no sin there. There's ultimate purity. There is positional purity. If you are a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were declared to be righteous. Because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, according to the Scripture. When a person is converted, a person becomes a believer, the Bible says that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to this person. That is a bookkeeping term. It is the idea of a bank, that someone has a lot of money in the bank, and they take what they have and put in my account. Now, that's what the Scripture says happens when we become believers, that the righteousness of Christ is placed in my account, so then I am in position, I am declared to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. And then there is practical purity. Now, let me tell you how this works. In the Bible, when it speaks of salvation, there are three parts. Usually, I think, as Baptists, we think of one part, that we walk down the aisle and shake the preacher's hand, we've been saved. But in Scripture, there are three parts to salvation. There is justification. 
Now, that's when I am converted. And at that point, I am saved from the penalty of sin. I am not going to hell. So there is justification. Then there is sanctification. Sanctification is the event of placing the believer in the body of Christ and the process that begins to happen in that person's life that sin is being put out of their life and they are becoming more like Jesus. That is sanctification. The third part is glorification, and that's when I go to heaven. And there I am saved from the, from the, the presence of sin. So there is justification, sanctification, and glorification. That is the totality of salvation. All right, positional purity then comes with justification. When I am converted, I am forgiven. In position now, I am pure. Practical purity comes with sanctification. As the Lord is working in my life, putting sin out of my life, I am becoming more like Jesus than I am becoming practically pure. And then ultimate purity comes in glorification. That's when I go to be with the Lord. So, as a believer in position, we are pure because the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to my account. Our problem is in practical purity. Is it not? It's living day to day a life of purity. How do we do that? In position, I am pure. But in my day-to-day living, how do I live a life of purity? And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you know how you're going to live a practical life of purity? By dealing with sin in your life, by confessing your sin, by repenting of sin. Say, well, you know, I thought that I was positionally okay. You are. But practically, we allow sin to come into our life. And the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the way then that we live lives of purity is by dealing with sin. When sin comes into your life, then you deal with that sin and you become practically pure. Now here's the promise in verse number 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they what? They shall see God. The pure in heart sees God. Why? Why, Why do the pure in heart see God? Because they're looking for God. You see, if you're pure in heart, you see God because you're looking for God. And when you're pure in heart, you see creation, but it doesn't stop there. You marvel at creation, but it doesn't stop there. You see a creator. When I'm, uh, Linda and I go for a walk, and I am overwhelmed by creation. I mean, I look at the trees, and I look at the sky, and I look at the clouds floating by, or the ocean, whatever it is, the flowers that are there. It all is a testament to me of of a creator, someone who created that. You see, if if you're pure in heart, then you're looking for God. You see God in creation. You see God in your circumstances, whether they are favorable or whether they are unfavorable, because you're looking for God. 
And no matter what you're going through, you see the Lord because that's who you're looking for. You see God in other Christians. I love to watch you on Sunday morning when we're singing. I mean, some of you, I, 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 you just bless me. I mean, just sing, and I can tell that it is a, that it is a worship of the Lord. But you see God in other believers. When you're pure in heart, when you come to church, you see God. Oh, I know there are people who come to church looking for something to criticize, but the person who is pure in heart comes to church looking for God. Because that's who they're looking for. They plan to see God, and that's the promise that He gives. Well, is it really possible to be pure, not humanly speaking? The Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? And the answer to that is nobody. Who can say that I've cleansed my heart, that I'm pure from sin? No one can. But you see, Jesus took your sins upon Himself. He paid for all your sins at the cross that He might give to you His righteousness. Okay, then if I have the righteousness of Christ, if I am positionally pure... How can I grow in purity? Would you like to do that? Would you like to become increasingly pure in your Christian life? Yes, you would if you're a Christian. Would you like to? Well, first of all, you hide the Word of God in your heart. The Bible says in Psalm 119:9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy Word. So, friend, if you want to grow in purity, then spend time within the Word of God. Spend time with His Word. And then relying upon the Holy Spirit to give you power. The Bible says, greater is He who is within, speaking of the Holy Spirit, than he who is of the world. So if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And the Bible says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not His. So you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Rely upon Him for His power. And did you know also anticipating the return of Jesus will help you live a life of purity, to grow in purity? The Scripture says in 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who has this hope, the return of Christ, fixed on Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. So how can you grow in purity? Spend time in the Word of God, rely upon the Holy Spirit, and anticipate the return of Christ. That Jesus is coming again and live with that anticipation that Jesus is coming again. So Jesus said, blessed are the pure. But then in verse number 9, he continues, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Barclay wrote, the blessing is on the peacemakers, not necessarily on the peace lovers. Now, there's a big difference. There are people who think that because I love peace, because I pray for peace, because I I want peace, then I'm a peacemaker. No, you're not. You're a peace lover. And he doesn't say that. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, folks, it is the pure who make peace. And the Scripture says in James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Traditionally, there have been three lines of understanding concerning a peacemaker. First, there are those who understand being a peacemaker to mean someone who makes the world better. 
And we recognize those people. There is the Nobel Peace Prize and so forth. We recognize those people who attempt to make the world better. Abraham Lincoln voiced this when he said, Die when I may, I would like it to be said of me that I always pulled up a weed and planted a flower where I thought a flower would grow. So there are those who understand, traditionally there have been those who understand, that being a peacemaker then means that I make the world a better place. The second line of understanding is that I am at peace with myself. That a peacemaker is someone who has come to terms with who they are and they are at peace with themselves. And then thirdly, there is the understanding of right relationships. That a peacemaker is one who emphasizes right relationship. Barclay said, the Jewish rabbis held that the highest task which a man can perform is to establish right relationships between man and man. And that is what Jesus means. All right, then, why don't we have peace? You know what Rodney King said? Why can't we get along? I mean, that would be, why can't we? Why can't we get along? Why don't we have peace in this world? I mean, there have been so many peace treaties. There have been so many peace proposals. There has been so much money spent, so many lives lost. Why don't we have peace? Very simply because man's heart is wicked. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Because our hearts are wicked, there is no peace. Isaiah chapter 38 verse 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. In other words, we cannot have peace without changed hearts. We keep trying. You know, we keep writing all these peace treaties and all these proposals and all these initiatives and so forth, thinking that somehow we are going to mandate peace. No, we are not going to have peace unless man has a changed heart because peace comes from the Prince of Peace. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Well... God is the source of peace. You have probably seen that bumper sticker on cars that says, No God, K-N-O-W, God. No peace. No God, N-O, God. No peace. God is the source of peace. There's no peace apart from God. The Holy Spirit is the agent of peace. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And Jesus is the manifestation of peace. All right? So we see then that God is the source of peace. Jesus is the manifestation of peace. The Holy Spirit is the agent of peace. And you and I who are believers, we are the messengers of peace. That's, that's who we are. We are the messengers of peace. The Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that was your job as a believer? God is the source, the Father is the source of peace, Jesus the Son is the manifestation, the Holy Spirit is the agent, and you are the messenger. We are supposed to be peacemakers. Well, how does that work? Well, I'm at peace with God. 
If you have been born again, if you have been saved, then you're no longer at war with God. You have surrendered your life to Him. So you're not at war with God. So you have made peace with God. Now, as someone who has made peace with God, I am now to become an evangelist sharing with others how they can be at peace with God. Are you doing that? I'm supposed to tell others how they can be at peace with God. So I have the peace of God. I share with others how they can have the peace of God. And then man can have peace with each other. Abraham Lincoln was on a walk one day with his two sons, and they were fussing back and forth with each other. There was a guy who said, what, what's, what's wrong with the boys? What, what are they fussing about? And Lincoln said, the same thing that's wrong with the rest of the world. I've got three walnuts, and each boy wants two. See, that, that's the thing is, is that we all want our rights, and so there can be very little peace that way. We all want things to go our way. There can be very little peace that way. The Bible says in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There are some people who are probably not going to be at peace with you. That's the reason he says as, as much as it depends on you, you be at peace with them. John MacArthur said we should conscientiously work on being peacemakers. And what's the promise? Look again at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God loves us as sons is what it means. They shall be called the sons of God. God loves us as sons. Someone in prayer, Jim or Calvin or someone was saying this morning in our time of prayer, talking about Eric and what a wonderful young man he is. I love that boy. I, I mean, I really, I'd like to be like him. I'm never going to attain that standard because he's a much better person than I am. But I love him. And you know what? I'm watching him as he loves his son. And he loves those boys. You see, that's what it says, that we are called the sons of God. And God loves us as sons. He forgives us as sons. Whenever our children make mistakes and they do things wrong, we're willing to forgive them. And God is willing to forgive us, and it means that God provides for His sons, just like you provide for yours. You provide for your children, and God provides for His children. They shall be called sons of God. I hope you think of yourself in those terms, that if you have been born again, that you understand that you are a child of God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, you ought to act like you are. Now, let me conclude. I'm hoping that you're seeing as we've gone through these Beatitudes the progression of them. Because what he's doing is revealing to us in this sermon what it is to be a Christian. Folks, being a Christian does, means far more than walking down an aisle and shaking the pastor's hand. Much more than that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who understand their spiritual poverty. And then they mourn as a result of it. And then they are humbled by their condition. They begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful to others. They are pure in heart. And they become peacemakers. That's what a Christian is. Being a Christian is not being a Baptist, a Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, or anything else. Jesus is describing what it is to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me for just a moment because I want to lead you in a prayer. 
giving you the opportunity, if you've never invited Christ into your heart, that you would do so even now. Just pray the prayer like this, uh, this prayer or prayer like this. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I ask that you forgive me of sin. I commit my life to you as Lord and Savior, and I pray that you'll come into my life and be my Savior. Be my Lord. I give my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you meant it and you prayed it, Jesus will do his part if you do yours. I'd like to know about it. We'll have staff members here at the front. Just come and tell one of them. I invited Christ into my heart. There's some of you looking for a church home. Our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. The Lord leads you. Stand with me, please. As the choir sings, you come. I'll greet you as you do.